Please turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words are well known to us in the sense that we have heard them before. But Lord, we wonder whether we truly understand them. We wonder whether these things have sunk deeply into our hearts and minds and whether they have changed our lives or not. We pray, Lord, that the the powerful heat and light of your Holy Spirit would be upon us, a spirit of holiness and of truth and of light, and to burn the imprint of these things deep in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to this middle section in Luke 12, section between verse 22 and verse 34. But first, a little word about repetition. We repeat things that are important, don't we? We repeat things that are important. And with regard to Scripture itself, much of what we find in this text, in this section, can also be found in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus surely said it more than once. And we know that's true of several things. But here in very, very different sections, we find much of the same material. Now, we can be certain 
that God doesn't waste words. He expects us to know, indeed to be mindful of, indeed to remember everything that he said. When he speaks to the Pharisees, he speaks to them as if you should know this. This text here, that text here, doesn't matter whether it's the Shema or some some obscure part of, of Scripture. He's expecting us to know and even understand the implications of what he has said. And he says that none of his words should fall to the ground. Even as we're going through the 119th Psalm, we're reminded of the preciousness, the importance of God's word and our need to meditate on every little bit of it. So he doesn't waste words. But now when he adds to that and he repeats himself as he does on this, we can be sure it's really, really important. We can be sure also it's something that we struggle with. It's something that will be a pervasive concern to God's people. And I think that is precisely the situation with anxiety. I think that is exactly the problem of worldly concern. It is something that is so pervasive and so continual that God has to mention it in various places and in various different ways. Now, if that weren't enough, uh, that's the situation, I think, at all times, all places, in, in God's word reflected in this repetition. If that weren't enough... What do we find in here? What do we find about this congregation? Well, I think the Holy Spirit has been trying to get our attention, actually. I think that this has been a theme of the last few months. We have seen this over and over again. We have seen, in fact, that the Lord is speaking. And if that weren't enough, I would say, I would add to it, that in my own notes, as I think of my visitations with you all, that anxiety is a concern for this whole church and certainly myself included. Well, all this mess, the same message is coming through to us. Don't worry. Do not worry about your life. That's the quote, and that is the title of the sermon this morning. Do not worry about your life. And three points into this basic idea. First, what is worry? We have to define it. What is worry? Second, there are three illustrations that Jesus gives to us to help to illumine us, uh, to help us to understand the truth of these things. And thirdly, then the larger principle. So the definition, the illustrations, and the principle. First, the definition. What is worry? Verse 22, then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Well, there's that little word there. Do not worry about your life. And in some sense we say, well, that's it. That's all we need to know. But I think actually the biblical concept of worry, this, this Greek word that's used here, is a little bit harder than you might think. It certainly was harder than I thought. And let's just walk through some of the main passages that teach on it and see what we can come up with. Now, we've already considered Martha and Mary. You you remember that in Luke chapter 10. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And we've already noted that the things that Martha was worried about and troubled about were not in themselves sinful. That's the crucial thing. Not in themselves sinful. The problem with them is that they were keeping her from something even more important, vastly more important. Here was the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. It was not every day that he was going to come. It was not every day that he was going to be there teaching. And it is at that point that the less important things must yield, the less important things must be laid down and laid aside to make room for the more important things. 
And that was a problem with her anxiety. That was a problem with her being worried and anxious about these many things. They were keeping her from something far more important. Now, that's before us, behind us in Luke, and Lord willing, we'll be coming in Luke 21 to another instance of this word. But take heed to yourselves, this is Luke 21, 34, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. That's the word there, anxieties of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. This is speaking about the future. He's coming back. The Lord is returning. He's, he's giving us a warning. Take heed. Now, in this case, drunkenness is a sin in itself. But some of the other things, again, the cares of this life may not be. Jesus' point has to do with the distraction of these things. It has to do with the distraction of the cares of this life. Again, some of which are not sinful in themselves. The problem is that these things are going to weigh you down. You'll not be looking. You'll not be concerned for the the imminent return of Christ. You'll be so focused on the things here, so distracted by them, you won't even be looking when the time comes. And that is the problem with it. Then moving on to the epistles. We have that section in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a hard one to interpret, and and I I hesitate even to bring it up, but I I want us to get a basic idea here, okay? This is 1 Corinthians 7.32, but I want you to be without care. That's the word. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then skipping down to verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the world, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, brothers and sisters, we can be absolutely certain that there is nothing sinful about marriage. We know that. One of the very first things that the Lord God ever utters is that it is not good for man to be alone and provides, makes this provision for something that was incomplete in creation in creating the woman for the man. So we can be certain there's nothing sinful about it. The point is that even something very good, some good provision of God that he's given out of his generosity and and triune goodness and abundance he gives to us for our good, it can be used for distraction. That even building up a family, even the very lawful concerns of a man providing for his wife and a wife helping her husband, that these things can be distractions, that these things can be anxieties of this world and keep us then from a focus on the Lord. Later on, by the way, Paul uses that same word in a very good way. 1 Corinthians 12.25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. What if it was anxiety? Because that's the same word. It's the same exact word. And, and we say, well, what is it? Is it good or is it bad? Well, when it's, regard, when, it's, when it's anxiety about worldly things, the things of this world, it's bad. When it's anxiety about the spiritual good of the people around you that God has put you, not, not in this case of your own church, then it's a good thing. When it's a pervasive concern of which other things have to, have to yield, other things have to take a back seat to, when that's the, the big, big stone that, go, uh, that goes into your bucket and all the other things are, are, uh, um, are pushed aside because of it, that's okay. That's a good thing. He's telling you, in fact, you should have that kind of concern for your brothers and sisters. 
And that your own worldly self-concern ought to give way to that kind of concern. It's a good thing in this case, depending on the object of it. The same word also in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Likewise, besides the other things which come upon me daily. You know, he gave the long list of all the, the burdens that he bears as an apostle. But what he says is what it comes, comes upon me daily. It's not just the beatings. It's not just imprisonment and all the rest of the persecution. It's my deep Concern for all the churches. Good word to put it. Deep concern. So I might even want to translate that word throughout all of Scripture as deep or pervasive concern because that's the most neutral way to put it. He says that's what comes upon me daily is this pervasive concern I have for the churches. And it's not sinful. It's a burden that God has given to him. That he might be continually thinking about them, continually praying for them, continually seeking their good. And sometimes Paul's own good, you know, worldly condition about his own body and about his own uh, goods and situation has to take a back seat to this concern. Or Philippians 2.20, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, you see. Pervasive concern for your state. For they all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Are you beginning to get the picture now? The, the problem is, is not the idea of having a pervasive concern. That's okay. When Paul has it, he says, this is a sign of my being an apostle. When he speaks of someone else, he says, this is what I want to see in them. When he speaks of the church, he says, that's what I want you to have for one another. The problem is when that pervasive concern which causes other things to move aside. It's like some giant bus running to the, 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 the middle of a crowded street and, and maybe a place like India or something. Everything else has to move aside for this big bus. The question is, what's in that bus and who's driving it and where is it going? Is it the things of this world or are it spiritual concerns? That's the issue. And so when we come to something like Philippians 4, 6, it helps us to understand because that's, you know, that's the one that we think about with anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in by everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so we can understand the implication of what it is. Anxious for nothing, what it's saying is of these worldly things directed in that way, but rather to turn our hearts to the Lord. That's what it's saying. So the bottom line, again, the idea is not necessarily bad. The prohibitions and the warnings all have to do with worldly concerns. The problem is, again, not that some, we shouldn't have some all-pervasive concern. We ought to. In fact, you have to. Okay? Everyone has something that's driving them. Everyone has something. When push comes to shove, that thing's going to get done and other things aren't. This is the thing they're going to be thinking about and other things are not. Okay? I sometimes wish that we could do an audit of ourselves. We could go to some machine and it would spit out. Have you, you know, online some web, it's not as, as common these days, but maybe five years ago, they used to uh, uh, send to a certain website and the words that appear in your website or the words that appear in your book or article the, the ones that, that happen the most instances are written large. And then there are littler and smaller ones and they're, they're worded all over the place, right? And you get to see, wow, look at that. 
This, this word is the thing that we're really concerned about. What if we could do that with our, our hearts? We could see, maybe we'd have to wear a t-shirt with the things that we're most concerned with. And in, and in, in, in embarrassing ways, actually, we'd see in very tiny letters things that we're not so concerned about, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'd want to wear that t-shirt for you this morning. They distract these worldly concerns. They entangle us. And they, I, I, as we say, that's the problem. The cares, you remember the, the category three uh, seed in the parable of the sower. Again, it's the cares of this world which choke him and keep him from being fruitful. That's, that's the problem. Well, all these things distract from God the deadly spiritual effect. And I want us also to understand that they're beyond our control anyhow as we consider this definition that we're working with. The, the outcomes are beyond our control. You can spend your entire life absolutely preoccupied with making your life here as, as great as you can do it. You're, you can get a career to maximize your income. You can have investments to maximize your assets. You can maximize your house, your furnishing, your the shopping for things, taking care of yourself physically in the best way possible. If you have children, you can be preoccupied with maximizing their potential in every sort of way, setting them up for success in this world. But the problem, as Jesus points out at the very beginning, is that we might be struck down this very night. And then... What's the fruit of all that pervasive concern for things that happen right here in this world? What, it, what happens to that? Nothing. It's, it's gone. It does you no good at all. And worse than that, it has distracted you from things that are going to do you good in eternity. If you're an unbeliever, which is the, the point here, the rich, uh, the rich farmers we considered last time, it means you're going to be in hell. And if you're a Christian, it means you will be relative to others. Uh, those with less rewards, those that did not make the, good use, the best use of the time and the opportunities they had to serve the Lord while they had those opportunities. Because it's fleeting. There is something precious about our time in this world. It's short. It's brief. And our situation in this world doesn't mean all that terribly much. But the things that we do to the Lord, they last forever. And it is, in fact, a precious, precious opportunity not to be repeated. Well, anyhow, we should not worry in the sense of having a pervasive concern for the things of this world, which in the end, again, are beyond our control anyhow. But we should have that pervasive concern for the things of the Lord. Now, that brings us to our second point, which are illustrations. This point has to do with illustrations that Jesus makes. Again, it's not just repetition. It's how many times these things are illustrated by parables or other things that Jesus gives. How important is it? Well, Jesus is giving us multiple illustrations of these things. And what he begins in verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Very simple. First illustration here of these three, the ravens. And what it means is that the birds are not farmers. They don't have expensive equipment. They don't have tractors and combine harvesters. They don't have barns. It's very useful, I think, to God's providence to live on a farm to see all this happening. It's some operation. It's, It's huge. 
And there's always something going on for, in the idea of making a situation for the future. And there they are doing it. But you know what? The ravens aren't like that at all. The ravens have no equipment. They have no fields. They have no barns. They simply live. And God provides for them. They are forced to rely upon the goodness of God. And the amazing thing is that the affirmation is that God actually does feed them. Do you understand that God does feed the ravens? We're not like Richard Attenborough, okay? This is not, nature doesn't take care of itself. It's not some machine that just created itself and takes care of itself. God is actively involved in every part of it. He knows about these ravens. He knows every one of them. He sustains them and he feeds them. Isn't that an amazing thought? How much more value are you? Why then do we act as if we're not even as important to God as a raven? We just assume God has no idea that I have this need. God doesn't even know. And therefore I must scrounge and scrape and be be preoccupied with these things because God doesn't know and doesn't care. Jesus says, what is wrong with you? God knows and cares about these birds. He cares even more about you. Second illustration. And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now, let me just say that this word stature is one of those words that has more than one meaning. It could mean height or it could mean time of life. And the question is, what makes more sense here? Well, what is a cubit? A cubit is here. This is a cubit. That's pretty significant. He wouldn't have used that, as I don't think, as an illustration. He said, which of you, by worrying, can add this much to your height? That, that would be, you know, that's, that's a significant uh, addition. On the other hand, if you think of your life as a journey, and of course they they did, and I think it's useful for us to think of our life as a journey, you're walking from one place to the other. You're walking from the place of your birth to the place of your death. Your journey continues as you walk through this life. And then if you say, what is a cubit? It's one step. One further step in that life. And the point is, I'm pretty confident, the point is, he's saying you can worry all you want. But you will not add one single step to this journey of life than what God has determined for you. Your worrying will not accomplish adding one single step further. You can't do that. You, you can worry your entire life. And you can add up all of that worry, all of that anxiety, all that concern. And you can, you can put it into a machine. And the output of that will not cause you to go one further step, not to live one further second than what you would otherwise have done. If you can't even do that much, if you can't even live a further second than what you'd otherwise do, why do you worry about these things? What's the point? Well, the third of these illustrations, the lilies. So we have an illustration with regard to the birds. We have an illustration with regard to the length of our life. And then to the lilies. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. These lilies. It's an interesting thing to consider the lilies. We have them, don't we? We have these things, these bulbs that, that grow up. 
or we did up until recently, and they mowed, and, and they've, been, they've been mowed down, because that's what happens to lilies. The amazing thing is, of course, that they're so beautiful, and that, that we in all of our creativity cannot make fake flowers that are better than that. You know, we have a lot of technology now, don't we? But we always know and can always be assured that the real thing that God makes is better than all that. And he's saying that, these, that Solomon, in fact, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these in all of its perfection, in all of its beauty. God in his goodness bestows this on grass. Right? It's just going to be cut down soon enough. But he bestows that on worthless grass. Of how much more value are you? Don't you think that he cares for you? Don't you think he's going to give good things for you? Don't you think he's going to take care of you? And to add that, he says, Oh, you of little faith. You see, God has promised us things. Now, we should, be, we should be careful at this point. He hasn't promised us every last thing that could ever be desired in this world. That's not the case. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And by the way, these are what the illustrations relate to. At the beginning, it has to do with feeding ravens. It has to do with food. And now this third one, it has to do with clothing, clothing these lilies. And these are the specific things that God has promised to give to us, food and clothing. He says, having those things, food and clothing, let us be content. But the point is, that God demonstrates his goodness, his ability, his willingness to provide to this mere grass destined for such a brief existence before it is to be burned in the oven. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that runs this universe. He is good in that way. And therefore, what does it say? What does it say when we, we run around like rats scrimping for something It betrays a lack of faith. Do you understand? It betrays a lack of faith. It is the faithless pagan who thinks that everything is absolutely dependent upon himself and lives that way and thinks that way and his heart is full of concern and anxiety because of those things because if he doesn't do it then it won't get done. And so the rat continues on the rat race. Our God... Brothers and sisters, it's not like that. And it only betrays our lack of faith when we start living, we start thinking, when our hearts become so anxious on these things. Oh, you of little faith. Not you, wise person, making good provision for yourself. You of little faith, because you do not believe that God is going to be able to provide for you. So, the illustrations are powerful ones. There is even a greater principle, which is our third point, the principle, the larger principle of these things. Verse 29, And do not seek for what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Again, it is not being merely worried about these things. It is seeking after them. That is the problem. That it's, you, you are... Really, we only have so much time and energy in this life to devote to things. It's not an infinite quantity of that, I, I know. And the question is, what is it that we're seeking after? What is it that we're, we're looking for? If somebody were to encounter you in your 
day-to-day existence and they see a look of concern on your face, what is it about? What is it that you are seeking? That question was sometimes asked. Jesus asked that question. What are you seeking? Well, if it's a good situation here in this life, and we know that that takes many forms, uh, we, we always think that someone else's worldliness is the unseemly kind or the real kind, and we have a different kind of worldliness that doesn't count. But seeking after a good situation, the best situation in this life, is an all-pervasive concern that takes many forms. And are we seeking that, or are we seeking a good situation in eternity? That's the issue. Are we seeking a good for ourselves and for others in eternity? Is that the thing that might bring a look of concern on our face. Priorities. And what Jesus says, verse 30, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. Now, we can speak of things being forbidden, and unfortunately, that's what we resort to. We have to say, well, well, show me it's a sin. It doesn't work that way. Jesus has told us not to be anxious, and that ought to be enough for us. That's, that's, that's it. Don't be anxious. That part is forbidden. But as we said, some of the things you can be anxious about, they're perfectly good things. That's, that's the gray area, as it were. That's the thing that requires godly wisdom. That's the thing that requires a prompting of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand when we cross that line. But the larger message is not so much that it is forbidden, but it is unseemly. Do you see here? He's saying all these things are the things that the Gentiles, the nations of the world, the unbelieving pagans, they're concerned about these things. And he's saying it is unseemly for you to be so concerned about those things. It is not fitting for the children of the living God to go around acting like rank infidels and idolaters in our concerns, pervasive concerns for the things of this world. That's the issue. Imagine again the workers of some miserly, absentee boss. I don't know if you've ever been around such, but they, these workers, these poor workers, have to go around scrounging because they have to. They have no alternative. They don't go around scrounging for everything they can get. They're not going to because their boss certainly is not going to provide it for them. Their boss is certainly not looking out for their good, for their, their, their comfort and their, 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 their own needs. And so forth. they had better do it themselves. And there they are pushing one another out of the way to get whatever good thing there might be. Stealing time from one another in order that they might have a little break which their boss has not provided. And all the rest of these kind of things. So it is with the Gentiles. They have to fend for themselves. They have no one else to do it, at least they think. They need to scrape and scrounge like the orphans that they are. You know why? Because they don't have a good heavenly father. Their father is the devil. And he's the wicked boss. And they need to scrape and scrounge like rats. Because that is their real situation. Or again, so they think. So they've been deceived to think. But brothers and sisters, that is not our situation, is it? We have a Father who is in heaven. Who cares more for our good than we could possibly care. He, in his infinite knowledge, knows far greater than we what is good and right for us to have. And he is good and wants to give it to us because he loves us. He does. And it is not right for us to act like he doesn't even exist. 
And here's the principle, all that leading up to this, this big principle in verse 31. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. A matter of priority. It's a matter of seeking. We were thinking about this seeking. What is it that you seek? And that's the question. What are you seeking? Are you seeking the kingdom of God? And he's saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to be concerned about my priorities. And I will add these other things to you. I will take care of them. Again, in the providence of God, it's useful to have very young children. Toddlers, babies. And to know what they're like. Have you ever seen them at the dinner table? They are absolutely convinced that you will forget about them. You have forgotten about them and you do not intend to feed them. You intend to starve them. Now, every other day of their existence, they have been fed and fed well. And the evidence of that is not hard to find on their chubby cheeks. But they are convinced that this is the day that they have been utterly forgotten about and they act like it in an unseemly way. Screaming for food which you have assured them that is coming to them. We don't need to live like that. It's, it's not good for us to live like that. Let us have faith in God. That he can and he will take care of us. Meanwhile, the thing that he's telling us that we should concern ourselves with, the thing that we should have a pervasive care and concern for, and that we should be our, our seeking in this world, is the kingdom of God. Again, it's a matter of priorities. At no point does Jesus say these things are completely without value. Actually, he, he gives value to the things of the world and saying, look, not, you don't worry about You don't worry about it. I worry about them. He's saying God himself worries about these things. God himself is concerned to give you these good things. They're not without value. He's just saying, let me worry about those things. They're, no, they're not as important as eternal spiritual things. And please get that right in your own heart. And I know you can't worry about a hundred different things or a hundred different priorities, so I'm going to make your priorities very straight for you. Now I, he's saying God, you know, God is able, in fact, to put all those things perfectly into perspective. There is no problem that God, even though he has minute, infinite concern and care to make the grass as beautiful as it can be, he can do that and it's not going to distract from his greater priorities. He's saying... I know you can't be like that because you're not God. I'll take care of those little things. You take care about the things that are really important. You make those a pervasive concern in your life. And I'll, I'll, I'll worry about those other things. Does that make sense? Prior, this is the principle. Seeking first the kingdom of God. And those who do that, those who do that, those who live like that will not have a problem of being anxious with regard to the things of this world. They will not loom large enough in their horizon to make such a big catastrophe, you see. Things we don't care about, in in that greater sense, is not a big catastrophe one way or another, is it? You can only be anxious. You can only fall into this terrible, gnawing concern about things that are, are very important to you. Jesus says, get straight those priorities and everything else will be fine. Well, let me now turn to application. And the first application is something very directly from the text, which is fear not. Fear not. It's another way of putting these things about being, don't be anxious, is fear not. It says in verse 32, he sort of concludes this, Do not fear, little flock. 
For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you, do you see how that is? The, you know, the, the things, the important things, the lasting things, the valuable things are not meted out according to the anxious care and the toil that are given towards them. Actually, these important things, actually these lasting, most valuable things are given as gifts to the favorites of heaven, to the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not you will receive these wages, or the wages of sin. That's, that's, the, that's the covenant of, of works. The wages of sin is death, okay? That's what you get for sinning. You get death. It's, it, it absolutely is a meritorious relationship. Because you do this, you get that. That is not the way eternal life is. That is not the way the kingdom of God is. It is a gift, you see. And the favorites of heaven are simply given it on a platter. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, the outcomes, you know, in this, they're just not in your control. But you have a good Heavenly Father who is in, in control of all these things. And not only is He going to provide for you in this life, which we say, don't be anxious for these things. What he's saying is he's going to provide. In fact, Jesus said that, didn't he? I go to prepare a place for you. Do you know that? That's interesting. I go to prepare a place for you. His, his concern, his pervasive concern and priority has to do with building this kingdom which we're about to inherit. He's building it not for himself so much as where he's going to give these things to us, where he's going to be with us. It is your father's good pleasure. He likes to do it. He wants to do it. He's not, he's not a miser. He's not the bad boss. That's Satan. He enjoys giving us these good things. And he's going to give us the best thing of kingdom. That's why we should not fear. That's why we should not fear. Secondly, I want to warn us against worldliness. Because I hate to say it, but you know when I said that anxiety is probably a major problem with this, this congregation. All of us have that problem. It's come to my mind recently that anxiety doesn't exist like that, doesn't in, exist in a vacuum. It's actually a symptom of a larger problem. It's a symptom of a larger underlying disease. Do you know what it is? Any guesses? Nobody? Worldliness. Worldliness. Anxiety of the kind that Jesus is warning us about, is a symptom of worldliness. Now, I know that that may come as a shock to you. I think it came as a shock to me as these things came together as I looked at this, this section. But it's true. You see, the reason why some aspect of our worldly situation, our situation here, has become such a great source of anxiety is because it has achieved a place in our hearts far more important than it should. If there is, again, just in worldly things, some little cheap trinket, if it's broken, you don't care about it. it. It cannot. Nothing that happens to that little trinket can possibly bring you to a situation of pervasive concern and, and worry and sleepless nights because you just don't care enough about it. It's only as things climb that ladder in your heart and get higher and higher and higher into the, the center of it that if something is touched or something is threatened there, that that then becomes the anxiety. Now, what it is, does it say if the things of this world have made it to that point? 
that we're so anxious about them. And again, I don't mean to be concerned about the care of the souls of your, of your family, of those around you. I don't mean that. I mean, though, when our anxiety has everything to do with houses and jobs and money and health and all the rest of these things having to do with our situation here, what does it mean? It means that those trinkets have made it all the way to the center of our heart. And when the storm cloud comes that, think, that you might think that something will, will harm the things of this world, you're anxious about it. It's a symptom of worldliness. Well, Hendrickson gives a good word uh, in his commentary about this. When church members hardly differ at all from outsiders in the ambitions they cherish, in the goals they try to achieve, in the manner in which they react to the disappointments and adversities of life, in the way they conduct their social events and parties, the kind of literature they prefer to read, in the songs they prefer to sing, in their choice of friends with whom they feel at home, there is something very wrong. It means we become worldly. Something very wrong. Well, I would warn us, I would caution us against worldliness. I would caution us again, look, I want us, here's the rule, okay? Be charitable in your evaluation of others. I hope we're not immediately thinking, oh yeah, I thought he was worldly. Not, not, not like that. I mean, you be charitable and put the best construction on other people's Situation. You find a way to say, actually, you know, I'm, I'm sure that these are very legitimate concerns. With yourself, you be the opposite. And you put the, the least charitable construction on it and say, okay, is that really the most legitimate use of time and concern and, pr- and planning and all the rest of these things? Or are you being worldly? And let's just be honest with ourselves. And repent of it. Thirdly, and finally, I think we should work in peace. Because let me say what this is not. I think if we were in a different place, in a different time, I don't know, maybe in a, a place, a society where people are given to laziness or there's a, a, a congregation given to laziness, then I would emphasize this even more. But what I want us to say is that this is not indolence. This is not laziness. This is... You know, Jesus perfectly exemplifies what he is he's preaching. He's not a hypocrite. And Jesus was never once anxious, not in his entire life. Can you believe that? For the things of this world. Not once. Every one of his thoughts were exemplary. And he, yet he ne- he, that didn't lead him to inactivity or to laziness. Okay, that is one sin that never occurred to his, his enemies. His enemies say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. Because he ate with sinners, yes. But it never even occurred to, to, to the, the enemies to say, here is a lazy man, a sluggard. Because you couldn't possibly. All you have to do is read the Gospel of Mark and see the activity. He is, he is up early and, and, and uh, he is uh, working and teaching and healing and moving from place to place constantly. Praying. He is always at that work. And it helps, in fact, to explain how, for instance, and we know that he was fully man as full as fully God, and here he's falling asleep in, in the ship. Why? He's tired. He's worn out. We should work. This does not lead us to inactivity. 
You know, the wrong idea is, I don't place these things as the most important, therefore they're not important at all. That's not the, the idea. Nor is it, I am no longer concerned about the outcome because I know I'm not in control, therefore I will do nothing to bring them about. That's the false logic of what's called hyper-Calvinism, where you understand the absolute biblical truth that God is sovereign and who is saved and who is not. God is God. It's by definition. Of course he's God. Of course he makes that decision. And then the false logic is, therefore we won't do evangelism because he's just going to do it. False logic. God is God and he will determine all of our outcomes, the things we have in this world and the things in eternity. The logic then is not, therefore, don't do anything and be lazy. Rather, it is to work with utter peace and confidence that everything is, in, is, is under control. 2 Timothy 2.6 You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. And so even as, on one hand, we say that the ravens don't sow and they don't reap, yet we understand that the hard-working father is a good, uh, f- farmer is a good example for us in these things. The outcomes are in the hands of God. That doesn't mean we're lazy. It just means that we work with, with cope and with confidence that these things are not in vain. You know why? Because we don't work as the pagans do. The pagans think that there is a direct one-to-one correlation between what they do and what they get. We understand that we work for God and we want to please him and that we receive from his good hand. And if we understand that we work as God-pleasers rather than man-pleasers, all the anxiety goes away because men get it wrong. Men are unfair. God is not. God is good. We work to please him. We do things to the glory of God. Yes, even in the little things, we do these things to please him rather than to manipulate the outcome precisely as we would desire it to be. And that's a liberation. That means our priorities are going to be the one that God sets for me because we know that he's going to, we might even do some things that may damage our situation in this world. We're not going to work or study on Sunday for instance. And maybe, theoretically, that means that our, our, our exam mark this time may not be as high as it would have otherwise have been. But praise God, God knows these things. God has made plans for these things and will use it all in the end for good. We work according to his priorities and he takes care of the outcomes. And guess what? There's no worries. There's no anxiety. That's the world that you live in as a child of God. And I pray that we not forget it. Let's pray. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you care for the ravens and you provide for the lilies even in your abundance and goodness and majestic beauty. And Lord, how much more so do you care for your own blood-bought children, bought at such infinite price, Lord, you care for us more than we could possibly care for ourselves. We pray, Lord, therefore, that we would not be as those who have little faith or even those who live and think like pagans, but rather, Lord, we would be those who work and live and rest on the Lord's day at peace, knowing, Lord, that you are a good God and will take care of us and you have promised never to leave nor forsake us. 
But Lord, the thing that you've given to us to do is to seek first the kingdom of God. And how we pray, Lord, that this would loom largely in our horizon. And that this would be the thing of pervasive concern in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.